going to see this morning as we talk about peacemaking and being peacemakers within the community of believers uh, is that a new heart is required in order to do that. That a new heart is required. That's fundamental to the whole concept uh, of Christian community because the Christian community is built around and by people who are and have been given a new heart. They are new new creations in Christ. You see, one after the other of the Beatitudes pounds into us this idea that it's not about your work. It's not about your behavior. That the behaviors that Christ is talking about here have and come up built upon this idea and this truth that your heart has to be changed. That none of these things can happen if you haven't been radically changed by God. He says, if you don't obtain mercy, we receive judgment. If we don't see God, we are not in heaven. If we aren't called the sons of God, we are outside the family. In other words, these things, these are all descriptions of a final salvation for those who are in Christ. You see, the Beatitudes attack a a deeply held system of thought, which basically means this. That you can love Jesus and say that you believe in Jesus and it has no bearing on the way you live your life. What Christ is coming in and saying was, if you've been given this new heart, if you've been radically transformed and changed by my presence, by coming into relationship with me, it will radically change you. You will be a peacemaker. You will be uh, one who is tender and caring. You will be merciful. You will be all of these things. And if you're not, he says, on the flip side, if you're not, be careful If you don't see these qualities in yourself, if you don't see these qualities growing uh, in yourself, be careful. He says, basically, get yourself a new heart. Become a different person. Because if you don't, later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you don't, if you hear these words of mine and you do nothing, if you hear all of this teaching that I'm telling you and you do absolutely nothing, then you are like a man who built a house on sand. And when the storms came, they blew away. There was no foundation. There was nothing there. It looked good on the outside. And what Christ is saying to us and what we have to understand first and foremost about life together in the community is this. The reason why we're going to continue to preach Christ, the reason why we're going to continue to talk about the gospel, the reason why we want to be a church that shares the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in creative ways all the time is because we want to see true life change happen in other people's lives and in our own. That our heart has to change in the middle of it. It can't just be outward behavior. Behavioral modification is easy, and we've talked about that, right? You can manipulate somebody to get them to do something for you, but to really change their heart, you can't do that. Parents, you know that. It's called discipline in the home. It's called you can get your children to change their behavior. If you're a boss, you can get your employees to change their behavior, but you can't necessarily change the heart. You know, it's that little joke and little story you've heard about the kid whose parent tells the child to sit down. The child's standing up on the chair, and he says, sit down, and the little child refuses and puts their arms across and says, sit down in that chair. I'm your father. Now sit down in that chair. And the child says, fine, I'll sit down, but know that inside I'm standing up. (laughs) The behavior changed, right? But did anything change about the child? 
Jesus here is saying to us and what we need to understand uh, about living life together in community is that first and foremost, our hearts have to change. So for some of you, that's a new concept. That's a new thought. I'm glad you're here. Attendance in church is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't get you into heaven. Going to Bible studies is a good thing, but it doesn't get you into heaven. Having grandparents or parents who are ministers or pastors or, or organists and all of those things, they don't get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is that your life has been radically changed. Your heart has been given, uh, a new heart has been given to you. It's the story of Nicodemus on the rooftop. When he says, how do I get saved? And he says, you have to be reborn. I was recently with some folks and asked them simply, you've heard of the EE questions, evangelism explosion. Some of you may be familiar with that, but it's a, it's a way that people used to share the gospel door to door. And one of the, they would ask two questions, and one of the questions was this. They would knock on a door and say, may I tell you some, and talk to you, and people would be trained in that, and it was an awesome ministry. D. James Kennedy and the folks at Coral Ridge Church in Florida would do this, and some of you may have been there and participated with that. And one of the questions was this. If you died tonight, and you stood before God, and he asked you this question, why should I let you into my heaven, how would you answer the question? I asked that question a number of years ago to some fifth graders at my previous church, kids who've grown up in the church, Sunday school every week, uh, parents who attended church, and the children said, I would tell them because I go to church, because I'm a good person, because my parents are good people. I thought, wow, our Sunday school system is failing us because we're not teaching evidently the right things. Our discipleship programs are failing because the parents aren't engaging the hearts of their children. Well, I asked that same question recently uh, when I was with a group of students. And I asked the students that question, and I asked their small group leaders to go out and to ask them those questions. And the small group leaders came back to me, and they were, they were shocked at the responses. Because now this is the responses of teenagers who've grown up in the church and some in the Christian academies and different things like that and go to wonderful churches and have wonderful parents, many of them just like you guys. And these children said... I'm a good person. I'm not mean. I'm nicer than other people. I go to church. I do good things. And I've talked to many of you. When you come into membership in our church, uh, you are asked to sit down with an elder and explain to the elder your story, how it is that you came to faith in Christ. And you know what we hear over and over again and what I've heard over and over and again for many, many years of sitting down in those meetings? Well, I'm a good person. I try to be a good Christian. I go to church. I tithe. Jesus would say it's not about those things. If your heart hasn't been radically transformed within you, if that heart of stone hasn't been given this new heart of flesh that beats and pounds for Christ, if your life hasn't been radically transformed from the inside out, then nothing else matters. Jonathan Edwards preached one of the most profound sermons ever preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And for most, it's taught in schools as a derision. Now look at those two horrible Puritan people and those horrible Christians who would preach such a thing, this angry God. And really what Edwards was really preaching about and what he was going at the heart was this. Folks, in church, be careful. Be careful. It's not so much that you need to repent of all the horrible sins that you've done. You need to repent of those. But what you really should be repenting of is your damnable good works. The good things that you do, that you stake your claim in, and that you think are going to get you into heaven, and they're not... And it's a false sense of security. And read it, or, and I've got some CDs of a man who read it and did it more of in a dramatic reading. 
I gave it to somebody one time, and they actually looked at me and said, oh, is this Jonathan Edwards? Like, well, he's, it, no. <laughs> but I said, enjoy it nonetheless. Um, but what he basically said was, be very careful. Your hearts have to be transformed first. And so we want to deal with hearts first. And that's what, what, Matthew, or what uh, Christ was saying first, was that your hearts have to be changed. And the second thing he says is peacemaking, and we're going to pick up there on that verse, that peacemaking, and all of these are essential qualities of God the Father. Therefore, if there are qualities of God the Father, they should be qualities of ours as well. Think about God the Father and who he was. Ultimately, at the end of the day, he was a peacemaker. Who did he make peace between? He made peace, and some would say you would start it this way, he made peace between me and him. No. It's actually the opposite. He made peace between him and you. He was the offended party, not me. Peace didn't start with me. It started with this incredible God who said that my creation has so wildly offended me and so wildly rebelled against me that what it deserves is justice and what it deserves is me to come in and show no mercy but out of the benevolence and the goodness of my heart of who I am, I am going to now extend mercy and grace to some within all of creation, and I will make peace through the blood of my Son, Jesus Christ, for them. That I will set aside my pride, I will set aside my arrogance, I will set aside my reputation, I'll set aside all of that in order to accomplish a task that I think is the most important task in all of the world, and that is to make peace with my creation, to make peace with my children, to overcome because they could never, and they would never. The scriptures say, none seeks God, no, not one. That all are at enmity with God. All have something against God and don't want to be with him. I'm amazed at how many people would say, I can't wait to get to heaven. And oftentimes, if I know that they're coming from a more secular background or a non-church, I say, why would you want heaven? Oh, it just sounds like a great place. I said, you do realize that heaven is the very environment of the presence of God himself. And so if you hate him in this life, you're going to loathe him in that life to come. Why would you want something that you hate here? Well, I don't hate God. Yeah, you do. And everything that comes out of our selfish motive and selfish intent and all of that shows our desire to be our own God and to rebel against him. And this incredible God came and made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, remember what we've talked about the therefore? When you see a therefore or hear it, you go, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, therefore, because he's done all of this, and now he has made peace with us through his son, Jesus Christ, it would follow that those who follow him and are made like him would equally be peacemakers, have at their heart the desire to be at peace with everyone that they come in contact with. Does that make sense? Is that a natural tendency, by the way? Not at all. Not at all. Our tendency is for justice. We love God's qualities of justice. Uh, we love the Old Testament word and the, and the King James that's gotten written out, that smite word, that God smote the Egyptians with a deep plague. And we're like, oh, I like that stuff. And we see people driving down the road and we're like, oh, man, we sh oh, God, this would be a good smite moment right now. Or we're with people in our homes, and, and we just go, ah, oh, and we just want to smite them instead of be at peace with them. The natural tendency is not to make peace. The natural tendency is to make war or to make cold war 
at distance from one another. It doesn't have to be active, by the way. It doesn't have to be active conflict to be not at peace. It can be very subtle, very sinister, and very passive-aggressive of little things that keep us apart. But the beauty of the gospel is this, that peacemaking is an essential quality of the child of God. First, because it reflects the very character of God, that he was a peacemaker. A pastor went and sat with a man who was dying in the hospital. And he said to him, have you made peace with your maker? And he said, I didn't know there was anything between us. There's something between you and God. If you're here as a guest, if you're here as a non-believer and you're kind of figuring this stuff out, here's an essential thing for you to know. There is a rift between you and God. And your attendance here, though noteworthy, will not get you past that. It's not your treaty of peace. The treaty of peace is what we're going to celebrate at this table later this morning. It's what Christ did on our behalf. And so it should be an essential quality of those who follow God to have his character of peacemaking and also to have, and as you know, what we've been given is his spirit living in us. Well, what's the quality of his spirit that's in us? It's one of peace as well. You see, Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, Since we are sons, God has sent the spirit of, of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And then in Romans eight fourteen, he says, All who are led by the spirit of God are the sons of God. Therefore, being led by the spirit also includes bearing the fruit of the spirit, and the fruit of the spirit is peace. And so he's saying this, that it would make sense then that those who follow God reflect the character of God, and those who have the spirit of God dwelling in them would have those characteristics lived out through them. So the question has to become, are you a peacemaker? Are you one who looks for opportunities uh, to make peace? And so what we're going to do is look at a couple of the qualities of a peacemaker that Jesus gives us right there uh, in chapter 5. I think it's going to come up on the screen, but it's Matthew 5, 43 uh, through 45. And he says this, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Notice 40, verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, just like what he said in verse 9. He's saying a peacemaker is one. It's an essential quality of the sons or the daughters of God. And the two things that he says there are what? Qualities of a peacemaker. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Easy, right? Homework today. Think of your biggest enemy. Think of the person that gets under your skin the biggest and just go love them. Go love them. I want you to love them, right? Can you do it? You can do it without behavior. You can show love, maybe. But unless, again, that heart has been changed, you're not really showing them love. You're actually manipulating them. And you're using them for your own satisfaction. But what he says is love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Have any of you been persecuted? That's hard for us to say, yes. But it, there are people who persecute us in different and various ways. In school, it's called bullying. Uh, and it's rampant and it's horrible. Just as an aside note. Okay, I'm over here. Uh, this is a pastor and parent. If you are a parent or a grandparent, Ask your grandchild or child this question. Have you ever heard of Ask FM, and do you have it on any of your computers or mobile devices? And if you have, get rid of it 
immediately. How many of you adults know what Ask FM is? Teenagers, you should take a look around and see how out of touch most of our folks are. Do you guys front row? You know what Ask FM is? What is it? Yeah, you can. T- he said it's a site where you can tell people things anonymously. Oh, that's not rift with opportunity for bad stuff, is it? Over the past, I believe it was year, in talking to Doug Langhouse and some of the administrators at the Christian Academy, over the last year they have linked nine suicides to Ask FM for cyberbullying. Cyberbullying. Some of you are going, I've never heard of such a thing. But it is real and it is there. And it's out there. And so this idea of peacemaking, uh, this idea of loving those who uh, hate you. Now think of the person who bullies you. Think of the person who's rude to you. Think of the person who stands in the way of the things that seems to persecute you. Christ is saying, love them. Put their needs, hopes, and desires, and wants above your own. Sadly, some of you, the picture and the name that comes into mind is the person that you're married to or the parent that you were born to. And that's the person who is your enemy or has persecuted you. And somehow Jesus is saying here that when my spirit takes up residence within you, when it takes that dead heart and it gives it a new heart, when it so radically transforms you that the love that you have from me and for me and the love that I have for you so changes you that you are now able and willing and desire to love the most horrible people in your life, to extend them grace and love and deference in your life. Does that come easy? Of course it doesn't. The the Christian life and the scriptures aren't easy, folks. But they're true. And so what we begin to see of a community of believers who does this is that we love those who are difficult to love. You've already got that person in your mind, don't you? Guess what? Somebody's got you in their mind, too. (laughs) Think about that one for a moment. You're that person to someone. You were that person to God. And he incredibly humbled himself to love you. And his son incredibly let go of the glories of heaven itself to die on a cross for you who hated him and would have continued to hate him if he hadn't made the first move. Oh, that just should shake your knees. So he says, love your enemies and love those who persecute you. Pray for them. You ever thought about that? I mentioned it a little bit ago. Why is it important to pray for those who persecute you? Well, one, it takes away some of the sting. That if you're constantly praying for them and have them in your mind, uh, it takes away some of them. You're continually lifting them before the Father. But what does that person need who's persecuting you? What does that person need more than anything else in the world? Do you know what it is? It's the same thing you need, a new heart. So not only pray that they would stop the persecution, but pray that the Lord would come in and he would radically transform their hearts, that he would give them the gift of life that they don't deserve any more than you deserve. And in that way, it is you are loving and praying for your enemies. Some of you are going, hey, but Bill, there's some great psalms. They're called imprecatory psalms where people uh, prayed down fire and brimstone and hail had all of that on their enemies. Jesus comes in and he says, be careful. There's a different way that I'm approaching life. 
We should pray for the halt and the stop of evil in the world. But at the same time, he says, constantly pray for those who oppose you. Pray for those who persecute you in that way. And be careful to avoid uh, some of these pitfalls uh, as you become peacemakers. All right? Here's some of the pitfalls that happen as you think about, I'm going to be a peacemaker. One is this. You become garbage collectors. Here's what I mean by that. Are you the person that other people seem to come to to dump their garbage? You're the person that everybody seems to come to to tell you all the bad stuff about somebody else, the bad stuff about all this other stuff going on, and you're there, and you think that you're a peacemaker because you're so genuine and you're so loving and you're so humble that you just want to just tell me everything. Oh, Bob's just a horrible person. I know it's terrible. I know that. He's just terrible. And, oh, Susie did that to you? Oh, isn't she a terrible person that would do such a thing to such a wonderful, sweet, and loving person like you? Oh, I just can't understand that. Oh, your children? Yes, they're, they're disgusting. Oh, they just don't respect you as a parent. You're such a great parent. All of this, and then you just sort of gather all the garbage in your yard. And then guess what you do with that garbage? Now, you're really subtle at this, and you're really good at this. And you spin it, and you're so, oh, it's wonderful. Um, Pastor, can, can I come and talk to you? Because I've heard uh, from a few people in the congregation that they're upset about a couple of things. Oh, okay. Uh, who are they? Well, I can't tell you their names. I've, I've promised confidentiality to them. But they came to me because you know, they're, they're a little worried and they're a little upset. Uh, and so I'm just going to represent them for you. Oh. No, I'm not going to talk to you. That's false peacemaking. Peacemaking is when you have something with me and we talk together. Now, it doesn't mean you don't get good counsel from somebody else, maybe. But then at the end of the day, you come and you talk to that person. You see, the fact, the reason why you have garbage in someone else's garbage in your front yard is very, very simple. You want to know what it is? You like garbage. You like having other people's junk in your yard because it makes you feel important and it makes you feel good. And you go and then you represent them to other people. And folks, that's not how Christian community works. Christian community works this way. We're going to talk face to face, eyeball to eyeball. Now, we may bring a witness in, and we may bring a brother or sister in who's going to be there to hold your hand because you think maybe me or, or Andrew or Susie or Lisa or Cynthia or anybody, it's just these mean, horrible people. If you bring somebody else in, that's fine. But we're not going to have garbage from other people in the yard. If you come to me, let me tell you how a community is going to work in our church. And again, do not read behind the lines. There's not massive conflict. We're not falling apart at the seams, okay? But I'll tell you this. If you come to me and you say, Bill, I have an issue with the children's ministry, my very first question, I promise you, every single time will be this. Have you spoken directly to Patrick Lingle? If your answer is no, guess what? Our conversation was wonderful. It was sweet. I'm glad you called. Go talk to Patrick. I'm not taking your garbage in my front yard. Go talk to him. Now, if it doesn't work with him, uh, then there's a wonderful gentleman and elder, uh, Garrett Albert, who works with our children's and family ministries. There's Garrett. And Garrett, if you go to Garrett and you say to Garrett, Garrett, I'm upset with the children's ministry of the church and Patrick, Garrett's response is going to be what? Guess what? I said, have you spoken to Patrick? And if your answer is no, Garrett's going to go, go talk to Patrick. And see what you can do with that. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Maybe. 
Is it fun to do it that way? Oh, of course not. It's a whole lot easier. See, this is, we learned these models in our youth and in our childhood, right? Children come to a parent. Hey, can I go do this? I don't know. Have you spoken to your mom? Mm-mm. Why not? Mom's mean. Mom will say no. Well, if you're going to come and talk to me and help me be, want me to be your advocate with mom. No, that's not important. You go talk to mom. You go talk to dad. You go talk to the teacher. You go talk to that person directly in those ways, and you deal with it. See, peacemaking is that way. I can only be at peace with you if I'm sitting in front of you, and I'm talking to you, and we work it out together in loving ways. Does that make sense? Okay. I may have cut down on my phone calls this week uh, and emails, but Matt, you and Patrick, you're in trouble. They're all going to come and talk with you. I mean, there's really nothing big going on. I just want to make sure we got the right behaviors and patterns going as we continue to grow and, and develop together. Also, uh, indirect resolutions, it follows the similar line that you talk about the issue, but you never really deal with the issue. Uh, and peacemaking is dealing with the real issue. Uh, peacemaking goes under. It, it's, the, it's the sin under the sin. It's the issue under the issue. It's not that you lied to me. That's the issue. It's what's going on that would make you lie to me. What's so broken in our relationship that you would sense that you need to lie to me in that way? So you go down to the real issues. Uh, and then the other thing that we run into is peace without truth. Peace without truth. It's important to always deal with truth. And you know, is it easy to deal with truth? Does the truth sometimes hurt? Yeah, it does. And so some people basically say this, oh, well, in order to be at peace, I can't really speak my mind. Husbands, you, you know this, right? Sweetheart, does this blouse make me look a little fat? If it does, are you going to say the truth? Most of you have just learned, oh, heck no. I'm not about to say that. So we've learned uh, in our lives. We've learned to skate around the issues and all of these things, and we don't really deal with truth. The Christian community deals with truth, lovingly deals with truth. So know this, though. Another point that I want to get, and then we're going to wrap up, uh, is this. Peacemaking is not the same uh, as peace achieving. Peacemaking is not the same as peace achieving. And here's what I mean. Jesus spoke these words, as much and as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with one another. What does that mean? It means this, I can extend an olive branch to you. I can extend to you a peaceful resolution, but I can't control whether or not you're going to take it. But peacemaking was so important that later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, if you are at the altar offering your sacrifice, if you are at the temple worshiping me, worshiping my Father, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice there and go be made right with him. And some of you would say, he doesn't want to be made right with me. That doesn't get you off the hook. Go and offer peace to him. And interrupt even your worship of God Almighty to do it. He says it's that important. But peacekeeping is different from peace achieving. Sometimes you just can't be at peace with another person. But as much as it depends upon you. You know what that means? Know yourself well. Have you done everything within your power to extend peace? And if you have, your conscience is clear before the Lord. And you're okay in that midst. And then finally, this. Peace and truth are not mutually exclusive things. Peace and truth are not mutually exclusive ideas. Jesus says, 
be at peace. But first and foremost, make sure you remain at peace with me. Sometimes the things that we hold and that we believe to be true and know to be true will cause a situation of a lack of peace in the world. And there's nothing that we can do about it. He says basically this. Listen to these words when he said, if it is possible, live at peace. And he talk, we talked about that. But then Jesus says in Matthew 10, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have come to bring, not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes will be those of his own household. In other words, you must love peace and work for peace. You must pray for your enemies and do good to them and greet them and all of that. But you must never abandon your allegiance to Christ and to his word, no matter what the animosity from the other person is. Does that make sense? He's saying this, I want you to be at peace. I want you to do all that. But there's something that's going to happen. And that is when you stand for me, there will be a lot of people who don't like you. There will be a lot of governments that don't like you. There will be a lot of things that happen that don't, if you stand for me. But never, ever give up my truth in order to just be okay with everybody else. And that's hard to do, folks. At every age, it's hard to do. But he's calling us to that. So we're to be a place of peacemaking in our lives. And ultimately, I'm going to circle around and say this. The reason that we can talk about peace at all is this. It's Christ. It was the ultimate peacemaker who came and said, I have to die in order for my father to be at peace with me. I have to take your justice on my head his anger and wrath on my head. I've got to do that in order for you to be at peace. I want you to come to the table today without distraction. I want you to come to the table today contemplating all that's there. We're going to sing an incredible hymn uh, of Alas, Alas and Did My Savior Believe. That Christ had to die for us. Let me do a couple of things for you. Don't get distracted by this. I can't stand these little things. But this isn't the point of communion. The point of communion is what this represents. This is, represents the body of our Savior given to us. Some of you would go, but this isn't real wine. It's juice. It represents, though, his blood. And the perfection of his sacrifice. Don't get distracted by the imperfections of the sign. But would your heart be captivated by the one who would love you through your imperfections. Through the perfection and love of his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your rich mercy to us again in Christ. And that we would come now to your table. And that we would prepare our hearts to receive life from you and for some here today they need to interrupt their worship maybe they don't need to take of the bread and of the wine today because they're not at peace with others that they need to make peace or extend it at least and then come back would we judge our hearts rightly and then come and receive the grace and mercy of our God to him we pray amen